And this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 1, 3 to 12. And Dave Vincent is going to, to read those for us. Dave. Barnabas and Saul sent off. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off on Cyprus. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you to Philip for leading us so far, uh, to Kieran and Dilip. Lovely to have you with us today and lovely to, to hear again uh, about the, the work in Delhi. Just brilliant. Folks, we're returning to Acts. I, I thought, uh, as I was preparing this week, that, that we had been looking at Acts last year. It turns out it was two years ago since we had a, a series in the springtime called Spirit-Filled Church. Um, time passes. Um, so we're jumping back into a, a second series in the book of Acts. Um, as we return to Acts after a, a couple of years of a break, I thought I'd start very quickly by showing you uh, an outline to the book of Acts. There are six main sections in the book. I'll just fly through this. A first section talking about the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. A second section talking about uh, a geographical spread in Judea and Samaria. A third section where the gospel starts to go to the Gentiles, so Cornelius, uh, the Roman centurion, and uh, actually Paul himself uh, become Christians. Sorry, Paul, a Jew, becomes an apostle for the Gentiles. And then a fourth section with Paul now the, the central character beginning to, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in, in Asia, modern-day Turkey. A fifth section uh, marking a jump for the gospel from uh, Asia, Turkey, into what we would call Europe. And then finally, a sixth section where Paul goes all the way to, to Rome, right to the, the center of, of the known world of his day. Just quickly mapped out uh, what's happening, uh, the spread of the gospel in the, the book of Acts. N now let's 
come to chapter 13 because it, um, if you remember the, the theme that we chose in our first series, there it was a theme verse, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus told his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in sections 1 to 3, we've done the Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria stuff. And now as we re-enter the book of Acts, we're coming in at section 4 because the job isn't done. The gospel hasn't gone to the ends of the earth. And now in chapter 13, it's a, it's a big moment actually because the, the gospel is going to take a momentous step. I think what we're witnessing in this chapter, in these verses, is the birth of the global mission movement. That's a big claim to make for 12 verses, but I think that's what's going on. So what we have here in these verses is the first sending church and then the, the start of the first missions trip. So that we'll use that structure for a moment this morning. First sending church, this church in Antioch. It's a diverse community characterized by prayer and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. First, the diversity. Luke tells us in chapter, or in verse 1, that there were prophets and teachers, and then he gives us a list of five names. And if we didn't pause, if we just read the list and cracked on, we'd miss something. Very powerful. The, this church is uh, a United Nations. There's Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? Well, he's a Jew, but he's from Cyprus. There's Simeon, that's his Hebrew name, but the people also call him Niger, which means black. He's most likely a black African. Lucius comes from Cyrene in northern Africa. Manaean, he seems to have some sort of uh, aristocratic connections with Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. And then finally there's Saul himself, who's from Tarsus in Cilicia, modern day Turkey. These guys are from all over the place. And they're in this one church in Antioch. Isn't that just brilliant? This multi-ethnic, international community of God's people. I've had the privilege over the years to be part of multi-ethnic, international communities and it's one of the most enriching uh, things that a Christian person can do is to recognize the diversity of the family of God. So for example at Regent College where I studied um, in Vancouver there were students from all over the world, 30 different nations um, from South America, from Africa. My favorite location was still the Faroe Islands. We had Paul Goodison from the Faroe Islands telling us about catching puffins uh, on the cliffs. I, don't, I always wondered if he was pulling her leg, but uh, uh, this international family of God. In 2010, I had the privilege to attend the Third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization. Uh, church and missions leaders, 4,000 of them from almost every country in the world. I think it was nearly 200 countries gathering to, to share together and encourage each other for the work of the gospel in the world. Just last week, our elders, as you maybe know, meet on the first Sunday night of each month for a thing we call learning to lead, where we encourage each other 
uh, for our work as elders, as disciples in the congregation. But we had four guests with us. Uh, we had Royce and Susan Johnson, who've been worshipping with us a wee bit here. They're from Arkansas in the States. And they brought along a couple of their friends, Jerry and Claudia Root, teachers from Wheaton College in Chicago. There we were in the living room. And these brothers and sisters in Christ were a huge blessing to us. Real wind in our sails in that hour together. And today we have Kieran and Dilip here. And you guys inspire us. When we hear of the, the work that you're doing, the, the way God is using you to transform lives, that's such an encouragement to us. It, it shows us of the, the, the scale of his love for the world, but also inspires us for our work here. So thank you for, for coming to, to be with us today. This church of Jesus Christ isn't homogenous. It's a diverse and beautiful thing. Second thing about that church in Antioch, it's a, a praying church. We're told in verse 2 that they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. And it was while they were doing that that the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. If you remember much of that first series in Acts, we, we found the church often at prayer. Acts 2.42, that famous verse, they devoted themselves to prayer. Whenever Peter and John are, are released from prison that first time, where do they go? Well, they go to the, the church gathering and, and people are praying. Whenever they didn't know what to do about the, the widows in their community and how to care for them, the twelve call the community together to pray. There are so many examples on the way through the book of Acts of the church at prayer. It's a community that prays. It's a community that hears God's voice. And, and I think those two are related, aren't they? It's because they're prayerful, because they raise their voices to God, that they, they hear him, that his spirit prompts them to commission Barnabas and Saul for this work. I love the way Eugene Peterson reflects on this moment in the early church. He says, The missionary movement, which can be said to have begun at this moment, was launched not by people on a committee trying to figure out what was best for the world. Isn't that good news? It's not a committee. It wasn't a strategy. But by people in prayer who were willing to do nothing. They're fasting. They're not eating, but they're also not doing anything else. They're, they're prayerful. People who are willing to do nothing until God had formed his intentions and will in them. I love that. If we take time to pray, folks, I think it indicates an openness to God, a desire to hear him. And if we don't, I, I can only imagine that the converse must be true. We're more convinced by our own ideas. We believe we have strength of our own and we just crack on doing our own thing. God's will, his ways, his power aren't important to us. So it's a community that's diverse. It's a community that prays. And, and thirdly, 
Look at the presence of the Spirit. They're worshipping, they're fasting, and it's the Holy Spirit who makes the way clear to them. This decision that they make is under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 4, as we read on, they're sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Cast your eye down to verse 9. When Paul has to confront his opponent, he does so filled with the Holy Spirit. So prayer is the posture of these early Christians, but the Spirit is how God makes himself present among them. You know this book in the Bible is called The Acts of the Apostles? Well, some of the commentators say that's not a great name for it because it, it focuses too much on the, the, the human players. They wonder if it shouldn't be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit um, by, by the Apostles. And that's why we call our series here the Spirit-Filled Church. This is a church where, where the Spirit is right at the heart of everything. I just wonder about that. How much is that true of us? Are we people who know how to do stuff and get on with doing it? Or are we vehicles of the Spirit? Sails full of, of His wind, His power. So we've got a bit of an insight here into the, these first verses of, of this first sending church. It's diverse, it's praying, it's sensitive to the Spirit. What was it then when they opened themselves to the Spirit that, that the Spirit said to them? What did he want them to do? He urged them to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Luke's record's a wee bit mysterious at this point because he doesn't tell us what the work is. You have to read on in the story to see what the work is that they've been called to. They've been called to this work of global mission. As I say, this is the birth of the missionary movement. We might call this the first mission trip. Barnabas and Saul to bring the gospel to the world. Folks, this, this is the only thing that a church of Jesus Christ who began to understand themselves as the people of God, it's the only thing they could have done. There's simply no other way to be the church than to do this work. Whenever God chose Abraham, he said, all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed through you. When the prophets uh, spoke God's word to Israel, what was it they said? You're going to be a light to the nations. Whenever Jesus came and trained his disciples, when he sent them, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Somehow or other, it's, it's about going there's no other way to be a church. So whenever Barnabas and Saul do this thing, when they set off, they're simply doing the thing that God always wants his people to do. The church exists to share Christ across the street and across the world. As I was dwelling on this passage this week, thinking it through, there was an image that came to my mind, and some of you might understand it better than others, Anybody ever use the centrifuge in, in school? Anybody know what the centrifuge is? 
we'll pop the PowerPoint up. Um, I, I don't really even know what we used it for. I knew what it did, but I don't know. So the scientists are appalled at me here. Um, a centrifuge, I'm guessing, was used to separate liquids. Is that right? Sort of? Yeah, and the way it does that is it spins around really fast and creates uh, forces. Um, so if you're not a scientist, if you didn't use uh, a centrifuge, I'll think of other examples. Did you ever have a bucket with water in it as a kid and you realized, I'm a magician because I can make water stay upside down in the bucket? Do you remember that? Or I, I did centrifugal forces in all sorts of ways, sticks, stones, little sisters. So you do this, and as you swing, if, if you let go at a certain moment, there's a, there's a directional force. It always flies outwards. So if you want to chuck your little sister, you do a bit of this here, and then and This is the image I have in my head of a healthy church. There are centrifugal forces at play. There's something that just forces us out. And when we lose that, there's something not healthy in our church. It's what we were made for. It's what God intends for us. Chapters 13 to 14 are going to tell of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. If you've been around churches for a while, you know this is one of the moments where you have to have a map. If you have a Bible with maps, there are always maps. So here we go. And you can't even see it properly, isn't that? That's perfect. That's exact. It's quite hard, actually, to get the balance of size and detail for this. That is the... I'm always rubbish at my points on the compass. Is that the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean? Yep. Uh, top right-hand corner of the Mediterranean. Uh, so what you're looking at there, where, where it says Paul's first missionary journey, that's modern-day Turkey. And the blue line, which you can't see very clearly, and all those names you can't read, that's his first journey. The second map will show it in a bit more detail, but I wanted you to see it in, in a bit of context. So there it is. Um, setting out from Antioch, which is north of, of Israel, uh, modern-day Syria, and setting out around these cities. We'll not worry about that today because we're going to spend the next few weeks working our way through that. So Paul and Barnabas, they set out from Antioch. They go first to Cyprus. I don't know. If I was doing a mission trip, I wouldn't mind going to Cyprus either. I think it's a nice place to start. Um, so they set off to Cyprus, and then the rest of our passage tells us very quickly about what happened there. They land in the eastern port of Salamis. I'm imagining them doing a tour of the island, different synagogues, and they end up in Paphos on the west coast. I can just imagine all sorts of very interesting things happening to Saul and, and Barnabas on this first trip. It's a, it's a three-year journey, so all sorts of things happen that aren't recorded, but Luke chooses to record a few different incidents. And the first one's here in verses 6 to 12, what happened in Paphos. There's this governor or proconsul called Sergius Paulus. Uh, sounds like a, a Brazilian footballer to me. Um, he has what a lot of people have in those days is a court magician. 
if you're some sort of a king or ruler, you'll maybe have somebody nearby, somebody who just does a wee bit of fortune telling, good at, at magic spells, that kind of thing. So Sergius Paulus is no different, and he has this guy uh, with him called Bar Jesus, and Luke tells us that he's a sorcerer or a false prophet. And that's fine. Bar Jesus is there. Barnabas and Saul arrive. But then there's immediately a problem when Sergius Paulus says he wants to hear this message from uh, Saul and Barnabas. The sorcerer isn't having any of it. He knows that this isn't a good thing. It's like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. He knows that if his master starts to listen to the, the Christian message, all of a sudden uh, he's out of a job. Uh, nobody needs a magician who's following Jesus Christ. So it, it gets pretty head-to-head uh, -head kind of thing here. Uh, and this uh, magician uh, opposes Paul. Look at Saul's response, or Paul as we're going to be calling him. The sorcerer tries to turn Sergius Paulus from the faith. And Luke tells us that in verse 9 that Paul looked straight at him and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You'll never stop perverting the right ways of God. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. It's powerful stuff. So this guy's name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. Jesus means God saves. Paul says you're no such thing. You're no son of salvation. You're a child of the devil. Paul's just cutting through and, and seeing the spiritual realities. In the culture of the time, sight um, was a, kind of a symbol of knowledge. So if, if, if a person uh, was knowledgeable, they were, they were said to have good sight. Well, here Paul shows that this guy doesn't know anything, doesn't know what he's talking about. And he puts a, a, an image on that when he, he makes him blind. So we have here this confrontation between the spirit of Jesus in Paul and those who would stand against the spirit of Jesus. It's kind of like a tug of war, and it's a non-contest. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, puts Bar-Jesus in his place. Paul demonstrates the power that's in him and shares the message of Jesus. Luke tells us, verse 12, that when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at this teaching about the Lord. The end result is that at the very start of this first mission trip, we have our first totally Gentile convert. What do I mean by that? Well, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, whom Paul had led to faith, he, he was, in chapter 10, he was what we call a God-fearer, somebody who was already looking to the, the God of Israel, who, who wanted to find something in him. But not Sergius Paulus, with no sense of that. As far as we know, he's just a, a, an unchurched, un, you know, a secular person, is the way we might put it. And yet, he still believes Isn't that brilliant? Isn't it brilliant what God can do? 
think about that. Hold in your mind those apparently disinterested friends, those members of your family who are seemingly antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can reach them. He can change them. His spirit is able for this work. We've talked today about this first sending church, this first mission trip, and I'll close now with one last thing to think about with Paul. He begins this passage known as Saul, and he finishes this passage known as Paul. He's not talked about as Saul anymore. In those days, nearly all Jews would have had uh, two names. They would have had their Jewish name, which they used among themselves. Um, and they would also have a, a Greek name by which they were known to the wider world. And quite often, the, the Greek name was just a translation of your Hebrew name. So an example of that, um, Cephas in the Hebrew becomes Peter in the Greek. Thomas in the Hebrew becomes Didymus in the Greek. So from this day on, Saul leaves behind his Jewish name and becomes known as Paul. Why? Why would you do that? It seems to me that Paul has so fully accepted his identity now as a a missional person, a person who's for the other, that he's able to leave behind his identity, his rootedness, me and my community. It's amazing, especially when you think back of who Saul was when we first met him. Back then, he was on a mission too, wasn't he? Like he, he knew what he was doing. If you remember, he was dragging Christian people out of their fellowships so that he could put them in prison. He was traveling to far-off cities to do that work, to drag them, to bring them back to Jerusalem. Paul was on a mission. He was compelled by hatred for Jesus and his followers. And now, in Acts 13, we have him setting off on a totally different kind of mission. He's going to travel again, far and wide. He's going to go to the ends of the known earth of his time. He's traveling with a very different purpose. This time he's compelled by love. Whenever he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, he says, Christ's love compels us. That's how he puts it. Folks, that centrifugal force... The forces at play in his life have changed entirely. They've been turned around. It used to be he went out to imprison and kill followers of Jesus Christ. And now he wants to, to bring the whole world to come to know him. The change? How, how did that happen? Because he met Jesus, isn't it? On a road to Damascus. Paul is what I would call a casualty of the gospel. The gospel's got him. 
He's sitting on news that he cannot keep to himself. He's experiencing life that he cannot but want to share with people. The gospel has become a centrifugal force in his life and he simply has to go and to share it and to give this life away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the the gospel of Jesus Christ, that thing, that grace of yours that's worked in our lives, that's brought us from death to life, that's brought us from darkness to light, that's given us hope. Lord, we pray that we would never allow the gospel to, to become grounds for complacency and comfort, where we together together with people who are like us and sing your praises but stay right here. Lord, we pray that we'd rediscover ourselves in the biblical story. This story with its huge centrifugal forces where it's always asking us to look out to look across the room and across the road and across the city and across the world. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us, each one of us. We're all different. We have all something different to bring to this. But Lord, we ask that you would work in us and prepare us all to give this life that you've given to us, to give it away and to share it with the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.